And good morning, everyone. And appreciate you all being here today. Uh, in regard to the uh, chili bake-off, um, um, Alan and I are the judges, and uh, we—I'm going to have a pack of Zantac with me just in case. So go for it. Okay, just go for it, and uh, we should have a great time that night. Um, I don't want you to date yourself, but I'm going to ask this question. If you remember the TV series, You Are There, raise your hand. Come on, some of you know it. You just don't want to raise your hand. I'm not going to say, oh, you're that old. <laughs> because, okay, we have a few. Well, there was a TV series called You Are There back... Um, Actually, it started in 1953. It ran for about 19 years to, through 1972. And um, they were 30-minute episodes uh, held on CBS. Walter Cronkite, the famous Walter Cronkite, was the broadcaster of, these, um, of this particular TV show. And what it was, it was a reenactment of historical events um, it, as a young boy, it actually prompted me to uh, get myself involved a little bit more in history, and lo and behold, I went, as a profession, I became a, uh, eventually became a history teacher, uh, especially American history in, in a high school, and junior high, and uh, middle school, and, uh, but this, these reenactments were really interesting, because it gave you the, the feeling that you were actually there at the event, and there was a, a host of them, there's 153 of them, in fact, some of the Hollywood stars got their start there, Remember, there's one where uh, Paul Newman played Nathan Hale. Uh, don't know if they teach that anymore. But, uh, uh, and um, the landing of the Hindenburg, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, signing of the Magna Carta, the fall of Troy. I'm just thinking about some of these uh, events that I remember seeing. And, and um, signing of the Declaration of Independence. There was even an event uh, that they had, an historical show on the plot um, against King Solomon in 965 BC. Now, try and get that on TV today, <laughs> all right? But um, it, it, was, it was quite interesting because if you remember those days, then you probably, um, let's see if I can uh, do this correctly. Uh, Alan, am I? Oh, okay. Okay, so why? Alan uh, does that. If you were, remember that show, you probably uh, remember uh, riding in an Etzel or saw an Etzel. I wonder how many people that <laughs> um, You probably remember uh, there was a show on TV every in the afternoon, and then eventually it went to some other uh, nighttime. It was called American Bandstand with Dick Clark. And then, uh, and then uh, you probably, maybe you had one of these. A Charlotte Russe. You remember those? All right. All whipped cream, little piece of uh, yellow cake on the back, on the bottom, and it had a little cardboard around it to keep it together. They were 10 cents at the little store on our corner where, where I grew up. 10 cents. And boy, did we bother my mom to get one, my brothers and I. I mean, that, that's for sure. Um, they started the show with this. What sort of day was it? A day like all days. Well, this morning, what I'd like to do is uh, go back in time. 
uh, approximately 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, uh, to a region in Judea near the city of Jerusalem. We're going to go to a garden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, Ark, in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd like for us to be eyewitnesses to his suffering. There's physical suffering there. There was emotional suffering there, and there was spiritual suffering there. And as we follow the scriptures, and, we give this, and the account is given to us about the Garden of Gethsemane, as one of the writers said, may we reverently kneel in adoration for what he would endure that night, and what he would endure less than 24 hours later on his way to the cross, and then, of course, the crucifixion uh, on the cross on that Good Friday. Now, I must confess to you, uh, I intended to speak on a completely different subject. Arminda could be my... Uh, can vouch for me on that. I, um, the more I started to prepare for that other subject, the more I could not get away from the garden. And uh, I just felt <clears throat> kind of led to talk about this today. And quite honestly, <clears throat> I could not get out of the garden. And um, hopefully, uh, as we go through today, we'll get a better understanding and a, not just an appreciation, but a true love of what the Lord Jesus Christ did and what he went through that night before he was crucified. Um, so we'll start with, uh, we'll go to this. When you hear the word garden, certain things come to our mind. Um, obviously, these beautiful pictures of these flowers uh, looks like uh, an arboretum there, possibly. Uh, we think of color. We think of fragrance, possibly tranquility or peace or serenity. Uh, we envision these kinds of things. When you hear the word garden, maybe your mind went right to, the, right to the Bible and you thought of the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect before sin entered, to the wor- entered the world, when there was no sickness and there was no death and there was no disease and where vegetation was plentiful and uh, where flowers emitted scents I would think more fragrant than the finest perfumes that we have in our world today. Um, You might think of an arboretum, a botanical garden, or your own garden. Again, my mind drifts back to my childhood days. My grandmother meticulously, she had a garden, she meticulously cared for every flower and every shrub. I particularly remember these beautiful rose bushes and these large roses, and she was so proud of them, and and, uh, we were not allowed to touch them, of course, uh, my brothers and I used to hit our baseball into that, and that wasn't a good thing, but, uh, but they would, it was just beautiful. And, um, you know, people think of the word garden. Sometimes they, their mind isn't even on flowers or, or shrubs or things of that nature and that kind of beauty. They think of garden, the Madison Square Garden. Well, if you went there, you went to see your favorite team or you went to hear music and in the bygone era, you went to the circus, all right? That was at the garden, and, of course, all this and all these things, whatever your garden is, it brings happiness. It brings a sense of, um, it brings a smile to your face. Uh, to your face. It might, uh, it's something pleasant usually, right, when you go to the garden. The garden of Gethsemane is nothing even remotely like that. Because in this garden today, we're going to see sorrow and we're going to see sadness. We're going to see turmoil, spiritual turmoil, and treachery. We're going to see trouble. We're going to see heartache. We're going to see horror. And this is, the, this is a garden that actually transforms into a battleground. 
a spiritual battleground and a physical battleground. But it's also a glorious example of what true submission is, surrender and servitude. And so you, we are there. You know, when you think of the word agony and the agony in the garden, um, I looked up the word, and of course it says a couple of these phrases. Extreme physical or mental suffering, anguish and torment, pain and distress. And this one, a struggle that precedes death. And then there's some synonyms that go along with the word garden, uh, with with the word agony. Um, Think of these. Three of them really struck me. One was horror. The other was, other was Gehenna, and the other was hell. And when we think of the agony in the garden, our, some of the artists, um, you know, they, they, draw, they, they painted these beautiful pictures. But if you take a look at those pictures, um, there's the Lord dealing. He's looking up to heaven. There's a light coming down. He looks like he's in full control, absolute full control. Doesn't look like he's in any pain or suffering or anything along those, those lines. With respect to the artists and their great works, and after studying about what went on in the garden, it was something far more, and I'll, may I use the word, agonizing. Far more agonizing. And today, I think we're going to get a glimpse of that. And I say a glimpse because I think, and I know I'm, I'm speaking personally to myself, because of my sinful nature and my finite mind, I don't think I understand fully the, uh, the magnitude of what Jesus went through. You've all heard the expression, you know, wrapping your head around something. Oh, I've got to wrap my head around it before I can figure this, I, I figure this out. Wrap your head. The more I tried to wrap my head around what went on in the garden, the more difficulty I had. I, I, I have to admit that to you. So this morning, I may say something that you've already heard. I may quote something that you've, you've heard and, uh, oh, I remember that quote, uh, or I was taught that in Sunday school. You, you're really not giving me anything different, Rock. But may I say, you, you, might be, you, you would be right. But I think it's worth remembering, and I'll tell you why. And maybe this goes back to my old parochial background. I always feel this time of the year, as we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, I always centered around the time of Jesus Christ's last days on earth his last weeks, his last week, his last days, his last hours leading up to the crucifixion, his burial, and then his eventual resurrection from the dead. And I, the weather, everything about it seems for me, personally, I gravitate toward that. And I think to recall our Lord's suffering and agony today is a good thing. Because then we realize how great a sacrifice he has gone through. Not just on the cross, but leading up to the cross. What he went through that night. And um, we're going to tread, as many preachers, writers, commentators have said before, we're going to tread on some hallowed ground today. Some holy ground uh, when we go to Gethsemane. And so I'd I'd like to begin um, with some of these quotes. Because I think this is more like what we're going to see today. I don't know if you can visually see that that well, but there's some red coming from the, from the top of the head. There's blood down on the sleeves. The Lord is clutching the grass there and those flowers that are there in that garden. Um, 
I think this is more about what the scriptures talk about. This is Jesus, prostrate before the Father. And I think this one too, on his knees. There's some anguish in there. There's some anguish uh, if you take a look at that. So let me begin but with a few verses, and that's, um, and I should say, quotations. Ironside, H.A. Ironside, these are all biblical scholars. What depths of woe, what bitter grief does the word suggest? So when he heard, he hears garden and he hears Gethsemane, that's what he, he said. William McDonald, no one can approach this account of the garden of Gethsemane without realizing he's on holy ground. Alfred P. Gibbs. The cup of suffering was his, that the cup of salvation might be ours. William Barclay. Surely this is a passage which we must approach upon our knees. Here study should pass into wondering adoration. And one of my favorites is this. It's uh, J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee said this. I cannot go with him through the garden. I'll stay outside the garden with the disciples and peer over into the darkness and listen to the travail of his soul. And so today we're going to peer over into that darkness and we're going to listen to the travail of his soul. Let us be moved by the physical, emotional, and the spiritual agony of the one who loved us to the end. And you, we are there. So here are the scriptures that are related to the agony in the garden. I'm going to kind of read through a combination. I want to thank Larry for uh, giving me that uh, download from actually, uh, it was actually from Kingsley Bear. I really appreciate that and really helped me because I tried to put it all together and I wanted to give some, somewhat of a chronology uh, of what happened here. You're welcome to open to any of these. John, of course, is, is just a couple of verses and we'll read those in a second. But you can look at any of those accounts, and you'll see when I put the scriptures up there, when I put it up there, it is, I'm, try, I'm, I'm actually going to be reading from each section uh, of that. And you're welcome to follow just as you see up here, or you're welcome to use your Bibles by all means. So we begin with John chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. He says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and these disciples went into it. Now Judas, who was betrayed, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Here's a modern-day picture of the Kidron Valley. And um, the crossing begins north of Jerusalem. It passes through the Temple Mount and, then, and eventually to the Mount of Olives on its, all the way to the Dead Sea. That might be another uh, idea of the Temple Mount and Eventually, if you take a look at that uh, building, right on the left-hand lower side there, that's called the Basilica of Agony. Um, I've never been to Israel, but I sure wish I, I can one day. Uh, and behind that really is the garden, actually, uh, from my understanding of it. So the Kidron Valley, and although it's kind of, you know, it looks a little bit garbled there, um, I don't know if I, you can see this, but... Um, this is, the, this is the Mount of Olives here. This is the Kidron Valley. They are going to cross a brook somewhere in here, the Lord, right there. And this might give you a better understanding of it uh, because here, 
Here are the city walls of Jerusalem. Here's where the garden is. Here's where the Mount of Olives is. Here's the Kidron Valley. And even this one, I tried to make it as, so we can get a visual picture of what, what's taking place here. And again, New Testament Jerusalem. Um, again, the Mount of Olives here, Gethsemane here, the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley. And of course, this, these are the city walls right there. And, um, you know, I was thinking about when they were going eventually to the garden, they, were, they could probably see the temple. Uh, they would be below, the temple would be up, up, up high. And uh, don't forget, they're in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has roughly 50,000 people or so, 60,000 people maybe. But not at this time of the year. At this time of the year, it's Passover. And there's over 2 million people there to celebrate the Passover. So it's a very crowded area. So they can see this temple, and when they look at the temple, what do you think of? You think of sacrifice. They probably can still, as they're walking along, they could probably uh, smell, if you will, some of the remnants of the sacrifices that may have taken place that very day. Uh, on their way in the distance, and um, I don't know if I could, if it's, yeah, it's right here. Fort Antonia. And they could probably see the fort. Guarded by, uh, by, by the soldiers, people on guard duty. And speaking of soldiers, probably on their way, because of so many people, Pilate ordered extra people on duty, if you will, Roman soldiers patrolling the city, patrolling the countryside, ready to put down rebellion if it occurred, ready if, if anyone was disturbing the peace to put it down, and of course, any kind of disorder. Um, it's, it's interesting that Jesus didn't stay that night in Jerusalem. In fact, that last week, he didn't, it appears he didn't stay in, in Jerusalem at all. He stayed in Bethany with friends. You could say, well, don't forget, all, the, all those who wanted to do harm to the Lord, where were they? They were in Jerusalem. So it probably wasn't a, good, a safe place for him to be there. But on this night, he went to a familiar place. And he went there with his disciples uh, to this place to pray. And I always look for ironies, and I always look for alliterations and things of that nature. But as he's crossing the brook, Judas is already involved in betrayal. And he's about to arrange his betrayal. You might recall a previous betrayal of someone that crossed the same brook of Kidron on the way to the Mount of Olives. It's in 2 Samuel 15, verses 23, 30, and 31. For time, we won't read that, but I can tell you the story. It's about King David. King David and his son, Absalom, is leading a rebellion. And who does he get to help with this rebellion? David's best friend, his friend, his counselor, Ahithophel. That's his name. And he betrays him as David was ascending up to the Mount of Olives, really. Um, isn't it ironic that another trusted friend, in this case of the Lord Jesus Christ, Judas, he was trusted with the treasury, would betray the Lord as he was crossing the brook Hedron on his way to the Mount of Olives. When he gets to the garden, he's going to experience agony like no other. He's going to be, he's going to endure some physical pain, emotional pain associated with that. He's going to have spiritual agony and, and we are there. 
And so we start here, and uh, Gethsemane, and what does the word Gethsemane mean? In Aramaic, it means an oil press. It was a garden covered with, oil, with olive oils, uh, olive trees, and the olive oils were extracted by these presses. It was a secluded place, but it was not a hidden place. And, 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 and hear me out on this for a sec, because Judas knew the place. So a camp, it wasn't hidden. He wasn't hiding in a cave or someplace like that. It was, it was known to Judas. This would give Jesus', Jesus enemies, those who wanted to do harm to him, a perfect opportunity to apprehend him. He was making himself available. He was going to be a willing sacrifice, and so he's kind of doing that. Don't forget, when he was walking through the streets or preaching in a synagogue, it was difficult, it seemed difficult for them who wanted to do harm to Jesus to do it because of the throngs of people and his followers. I find it interesting that in every single time that it, 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 before this, in which Jesus was about to be in harm, he escapes, almost miraculously. When it seemed like, oh, he's, he's about, it never happens. And, um, and the reason is because his time had not yet come. And uh, Judas knew the place, and before his betrayal and arrest, he would agonize in prayer. So we take a look at this, and we read the scripture. Then Jesus came to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, and of course you can see how I'm skipping to, he said, sit here while I go there and pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this will give you a little modern idea of what Gethsemane looks like. But he told he told the disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Who he was talking to, he's talking to all of them, there were, but there are only, now there's only 11 disciples. And the reason is because Judas left. If you remember, Jesus said to him, what you must do, do quickly. Judas leaves, and it's that chilling verse that I find in the Bible. And it says, and it was night. And this was a night like no other night. Gives me a chill. So he left eight disciples at the garden's entrance. All right? You can, if you count those, there's actually eight there. And um, they were to pray. They were to pray so they would not enter into, te- into temptation. Jesus is forewarning them. He's forewarning them that the powers of darkness are about to descend upon him and them. And he's telling, what, 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 what should he do? He should pray. He says, I go to pray you pray that you fall not into temptation. The deceiver, the father of lies, Satan himself, and his minions are coming, and he's trying to forewarn them. And so it brings up a verse, Ephesians 6, 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. This battle is going to be, takes place with the spirit of darkness there. And so we move on to the next set of verses. And you can see I put Matthew and Mark and Matthew, and I went back to Matthew, and sometimes I'll, I'll show you some verses from Luke in this attempt to, to give you a better picture. And of course, the scripture says, and he took with him Peter and, his two son, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be troubled sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. 
Stay here and watch with me. So here is the Lord now taking, he's left the eight disciples at the entrance, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Now, for me, the question would arise, why did he take those three? Well, something that came up today when I was thinking about what Alan talked about with the raising of uh, the son of the widow Nain, those three were actually witnesses to the raising of another person. That was the, and Larry said it in his prayer, um, one of the rulers in the synagogue, Jairus. Jairus' uh, daughter, he raised her from the dead. And, only, and, and at the time when he was outside, only James, John, and Peter were allowed in to do that. So they saw that. The other thing I was thinking about was the Mount of Transfiguration. Who, who else was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in John 17? It was Peter, it was James, and it was John. So I think they shared some intimate moments with the Lord, but at the same time, I give... Um, I think about what William McDonald said. He said, might this suggest that different disciples have different capacities for empathizing with the Savior in his agony? And I think that's one of the reasons why he took took them along. Um, And um, just to give you an idea, you could see the, I I don't know if it's that visible from where you're sitting, but back here are the eight left at the entrance, and here's Peter, James, and John with the Lord. Um, so they're with him. What do you say about that? You know, the one thing I would say is this. You know, the, the closer you are to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more he shows you about himself, the more he reveals. And I think, you know, in order to do that, you have to open up your Bible because then he can speak to you from his word. Oh, he can speak to you in other ways, but if you close the Bible, you close the mouth of the Lord. And I, I think that um, that might just give us a little, maybe just a little application there. But let's go back to the garden. The Lord is sorrowful. He is troubled. He's deeply distressed, even to the point of death. Now, you would probably say to yourself, well, wait a minute, Jesus was never troubled when he was on earth? I'm sure, of course. He was troubled by all the sin that he saw. I'm sure that he was troubled when he thought and he knew about the intents of the heart of evil men who were plotting his death. And I think it, he was troubled and saddened by the fact that Israel had rejected him. Um, you could hear the anguish in his voice when he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Uh, you, You know he was saddened by that. At the same time, James, Peter, and John have got to be baffled by what they're seeing and what they're hearing. They've got to be bewildered about what they're hearing because never before the Lord was always in control. And now it seems like he's not in control. He's in control. I, I don't want to be irreverent. But at the time, he is in such deep sorrow, even to the point of death, 
So for them to hear that was like an anathema, if I could say that. And he requested they stay and watch. Watch, to me, is almost like a military term. Watch as if you're on guard duty. Stay alert. Stay awake. Pray. Do not fall into temptation. These are the things that he's saying. And so we move. And here's Jesus, perhaps looking over Jerusalem in that verse, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how sad he was with that. But we get to the agony, and it's in two parts. And so I'll read it right through. It says, and he went a little farther, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he fell on the ground. He knelt down. He fell on his face and prayed. That if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, O my Father, all things are possible for you. If it is possible, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. I tried to, again, put those verses in, in, in an order that we'd, it would have maybe some chronology to it. The time right now is for Jesus to be with the Father. Matthew Henry said this, prayer is never out of season, but especially seasonable in agony. And we see it here. We see it in the place that he's at. We see in his posture. And we also see in his prayer. First, he prayed. He prayed away from all of his disciples now. A stone's throw. How far could you throw a stone? You know, if you think about it, it'd be something like, you know, where the the disciples are. Maybe eight are at the front of the, uh, maybe front of the driveway, and maybe Peter, James, and John are somewhere around here, and then you could throw a stone and probably reach the, uh, you know, the back where all the deer are we see every Thursday morning come and say hello to us after we have prayer meeting. I I kind of feel like deer are having their own prayer meeting. But, uh, and and, and he's back there all by himself. He's in prayer, one-on-one now. He's away. The verse that we just saw, and I'll go back to it. Just that first verse right here. He went a little farther. You know, when you think about it, Jesus always goes a little farther. Just when you think you can't go on anymore, Jesus is running ahead. Just when you say, I've had enough, Jesus is already there. And the interesting thing about, I think about that. He's bringing us us along in this life so we can have an everlasting life with him. He always goes a little farther. After his time in the garden, he would still go a little farther. He would go as far as the cross at Calvary. That's how far he would go, bearing our sins, becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, one of the writers, and I I forget, failed to, to, to give reference to it, but I, I, I thought it was just so poignant about this particular prayer and what Jesus is going through, and he said this, a troubled soul finds most ease 
when it is done alone with God, who understands the broken language of sighs and groans. Do you ever pray and you don't even know how to pray? Have you ever been in such anguish and sorrow and that you're, you're there and you're just, you don't even have the words? All you can do is groan. All you can do is cry. The Lord understands that. He certainly understands that. God understands that. And what about his posture? We see that he fell on the ground. He knelt down. He fell on his face and he prayed. He is prostrate before the Father. And this, this is a picture of the type of agony that the Lord Jesus Christ was in. I showed you back a few of those pictures where the Lord is on the ground. A sorrow so great that I don't think any human being could have endured it. But I think it also shows the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility. Kneeling before the Father, prostrate before the Father, falling on his face. Truly, he is a man of sorrows, as we read in Isaiah 53. And then his prayer. All right, then his prayer. He says, if it were possible, this, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, oh my Father. I mean, think about the words there. Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, again, one of the quotes that I found. We could never share his sufferings, nor pray his prayer. This is such a heartfelt prayer by the Lord. Think about how he, who he's addressing. He addresses it, his address, Abba, Father. Think about the condition here, if you are willing. Think about his petition. And it's okay to bring petitions to our God and Father. He wants to hear them. He said, take this cup from me. And then total submission. Not my will, but yours be done. All in that one prayer, all in there. Now, this is not Jesus cowering from the cross. That's why he left his very throne room from heaven to come down to this sinful earth. He came to the earth to be a willing sacrifice, to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. He's not cowering here. In fact, a couple more verses. John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up. This command I receive from my Father. Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You may recall just at the end of that scene with Zacchaeus, when he had that meeting with Zacchaeus, in chapter 19 of Luke, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost, that which was lost in the King James Version. And then finally, John 12, verse 27 and 28. And think of the words here. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So what is Jesus asking here? What Jesus is asking, if there is another way of salvation for ruined sinners, reveal it to me. If there is another way sinners can be saved, reveal it to me. If there's another method in which vile sinners can be reconciled to a holy righteous to you, a holy righteous God, let me know. Reveal it to me. But he also says this, but not my will, but yours be done. If God is to be glorified, man saved, and the ends of the undertaking fulfilled without drinking of this bitter cup, he desires to be excused. Otherwise, 
not. Those are the words of Matthew Henry. He is entirely submitted to the will of the Father here. He's not in opposition to the will of the Father. He totally understood the bitterness and the suffering that was ahead. And he is freely submitting to that suffering. Why? For our salvation and for our redemption. And so we further go along in the garden. You, we are there. You'll see, of course, I put Luke, Matthew, and Mark and Matthew together. It says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then he sweat. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, and to Simon, are you sleeping? Why do you sleep? What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Rise, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The struggle in the agony and the agony of our Lord continues. Satan has come again. And although he isn't mentioned here by name, he is relentless. He is tenacious. So an angel is sent to the Lord to strengthen him, to comfort him. I think it's unfathomable of what the sufferings of the Lord are at this point. I think it's unfathomable of what the fiery darts and arrows that Satan is flinging and shooting at the Lord Jesus Christ at this time and unleashing at this very hour. Now, you might recall this. If you go back, uh, I don't think we have time, but I'll, I'll just mention it. If you go back into Matthew's gospel, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11, you might recall what happened there. Jesus is in the desert. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil came to him, tempting him. And all of his temptations are really related to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, when you think about those kinds of things, those sins, if you will, they're kind of like pleasurable sins, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, right? He tried, to, he tried to give him all the kingdoms of the world as if they were really his to give. Come on. But we, we know he didn't really own them, the, 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 uh, Satan. But here he is trying to give to the Lord. Why is he doing that? He's trying to disqualify him as the Savior. If Jesus would have submitted to that, that temptation, then he would have sinned. And then, of course, God's plan of salvation um, is null and void. It wouldn't work, but that didn't happen. And although Satan left him for a season, the scripture says, I think that there were times when he, has, he was with him a lot, beckoning in his ear, even though we don't read about it, while he was preaching, while he was preaching the good news of salvation. But he's back with a vengeance right now, and this is another spiritual battle that he desperately, Satan desperately wants to win because he has to keep the Lord Jesus Christ from where? the cross. He has to keep him from dying for the sins of the world. The temptations that he gives the Lord now are not pleasurable temptations. These are painful temptations. That's what he's doing to him now. I can't imagine the anguish that he absorbed. It's difficult for me to understand it in its full magnitude, as I said. But we get a picture of how great it was. Why? Because he sweat great drops of blood. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ is on full humanity here. 
You see it. You see a beautiful picture of his humanity. Not beautiful, but you see where he is in terms of, of uh, his humanity. Uh, Luke's gospel is the uh, gospel according to Luke. Is, is, it seems to be the only one that talks about that, uh, about the great drops of blood. Even the word agony. From uh, if I, I can't find another place in the Bible where the word agony is written. Um, but it's here. Luke, being a physician, didn't obviously didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to bypass, if I could use that, uh, this particular detail. Um, now, there is a medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. It might lend some insight. Now, I'm not going to say that this is what he, he suffered from, but it might. He's in such great suffering. And this is when the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture and it exudes blood. Now, it's very rare, and it occurs only during conditions of extreme physical and emotional distress. And it's also accompanied by dehydration because of the great loss of sweat and, and of course, the great loss of blood. So there's a physical agony that the Lord is in. But notice, too, throughout this agony, he's praying. And the scripture says that he's praying more earnestly. Um, Let's go to the next one. He's praying more earnestly. I can't help but think that, you know, what's the only weapon that we have? We have a couple of weapons when, when, this, when Satan throws his fiery darts at us, right? It's prayer, isn't it? All right, we can use prayer. We use the word of God. And at this time, he is uh, he's upset in the sense, a few thoughts about this, because the disciples were told to watch and pray. And here's Jesus, despite, despite the agony here that he's in, Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about the disciples. They were on his heart. How could that possibly be? Only a God could do that. Only our God could do that. Ironically, and and again, I always look for irony. I look for alliterations, uh, comparisons. Here's an irony. The disciples are asleep. What are his betrayers doing? They are wide awake, wide awake, ready to pounce and to seize the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I think when he returns um, to them, there's no doubt that he expected them to be awake. Why? I, I think for a couple of reasons. I think Jesus in his humanity, he needed comfort. He needed encouragement. Wouldn't it have been great if he came and he saw them praying, all praying? What a lift it would have given him. But it didn't happen. As one of the writers said, they, they added grief to his sorrow. Um, and although disappointed and amazed that they could not keep watch, he gives, um, he gives a very uh, gentle reproof here to, to Peter and to the others. Think about the Lord Jesus. When the disciples were in great distress, you may remember the story, story when they were in a storm. They were in a boat. The Lord was asleep. And they were in great distress. Did the Lord stay asleep? No. He got up. He calmed the wind. He calmed the seas. And he did it with a word. He met their need. Unfortunately, they weren't meeting his need at the time. Um, he, said, he said to them, could you not keep watch with me with just one hour? And you know, when you think about that, you know, what does the Lord ask for us? Can't we, you're all here, so I can't talk to you, but, <laughs> 
But some are, they can't even give the Lord one hour a week. Not even an hour. And that's what he's saying here. It's a reminder, too, that the spirit was willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Our sinful nature is very weak. That I'm sure they had good intentions. But you know that verse, that, that, that saying, the road to destruction is paved with good intentions. It always is. And so why is he telling them to stay and watch and pray that you fall not into temptation? What temptation could they have fallen into? Well, we, we saw it. We see it. To deny him, to denounce him, to desert him. And it's not just Peter, because they all deserted him when it came to his arrest. This was a testing that was about to uh, occur. And of course, we get to the next part of the scripture, and I've already put it up, and that is this. Again, a second time he went away and he prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Here's a second time. He's asking, How can, could sinners be saved in another way? Could they be reconciled to a righteous God? If there is, let me know. No doubt the agony, the intensity of this agony is increasing. The poison of sin was expiating, he was expiating, gave infinite terror and pain every moment of his suffering. That's part of his, and then there's part of his spiritual suffering, his spiritual agony. And this is it. See, because to Jesus, the very thought of sin was so repulsive to him. He who knew no sin, he who could not sin, he who was pure in every thought, every word, every action. The fact that he was now going to take on the sin of every sin of the past, of the present, and then of the future, it was so abhorrent to him that I think it sickened him because he was so holy. But he remains faithful. He, said to the, he says to the Father, your will be done. He came to do the will of the Father. Twice he went to the Father to ask for the cup of suffering to be removed. Twice he finds the disciples asleep. And, uh, and of course he leaves them. And what do we have? He says, when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they didn't know how to answer him. You know, in a short time ago, what were disciples doing? They were in the upper room. And they actually told Jesus, we will follow you everywhere, always. We will never leave you. We would go to, Peter, we will go to prison for you. We will even die for you. Yet they couldn't keep awake for one hour. You cannot find them awake. You cannot find them alert. You cannot find them on watch. You cannot find them praying. And so he left them, he went away again, and he prayed the third time the same words. Three times. No doubt at this point, the attacks of Satan are now an all-out onslaught against the Lord Jesus Christ. J. Vernon McGee, who I love to read about and read some of his commentaries, he had this to say. Under the shadow of the cross, Satan came to offer the Lord once again the crown without the cross. He prayed alone that night. His disciples slept. It's a sad betrayal of our human heart. They who loved him so much, yet they steadfastly failed so miserably in that great hour. No one can share his prayer, and I think it demonstrates to us the unique quality of the person of Jesus Christ, that he would, and that he eventually would go on to work this great work on the cross on our behalf. You know, he asks again, and he's asking and asking, but this, the scripture is silent, isn't it? 
doesn't say the Lord said, oh, you must go to the cross. God's the Father. He doesn't say that. There wasn't a voice from heaven there. But Jesus had his answer through the silence, didn't he? Because he would drink the cup of suffering. All the suffering in a sinless God would be taken up by himself. And he was put through this great, great agony. I think what sickened the Lord the most, that what agonized him the most, is that he knew that when going to the cross, that he was going to be separated from the Father. Because he was going to take on the sin of the world. Now, how do we know that? Because we know when we go to the crucifixion scene, there's the three hours of darkness. The three hours is, is if the, Lord, the God, the Father, is now turning away. He could, I, do you ever do this? I'm, I don't want to be irreverent here. If you are a parent and your child has disappointed you, before you can come to reconcile that situation, there may have come a time where you said, I can't talk to you now, I don't even want to look at you. Okay? I don't want to be irreverent here. But since Jesus was filled with so much sin, all the sin of the world, the Father couldn't look at him. There was this darkness. There was this darkness. He's the one that cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He would die so we would live eternally forever with him. August Van Ryan, another great writer, he said this in regard to the Lord. He must know in all its anguish the agony of eternal doom, if we are to enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. Right now, Jesus is in perfect submission to the will of God, and we are there. And yet, finally, he goes a third time, and what does he do? He says, are you still sleeping? He goes to the disciples. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinner. Rise up. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas is about to enter the garden. Jesus is about to be arrested. Jesus is about to be brought before Pilate and Herod and Pilate again, and of course, eventually to the cross. You know, in the midst of danger, um, you think about this, he still had his disciples in in mind. Uh, Three times he asked for the cup to be removed. Three times they were asleep. The Son of Man looked for comfort from his friends, but they could not comfort him, he who comforted them so much. And as the Son of God, he submitted to the perfect will of the Father. And I'm going to say this twice because I, I really want to drive home this particular point. If you, if, you, if you take nothing from today, is this. He would drink to the dregs the bitter cup of suffering as a sin offering, bearing immeasurable, the immeasurable weight of sin so that we could be set free from our immeasurable weight of sin. Let me say that again. He would drink to the dregs the bitter cup of suffering as a sin offering, bearing the immeasurable weight of sin so that we could be set free from our immeasurable weight of sin. We don't have time to get into the entire garden scene after this. Uh, there's, I, I, I encourage you to read it when, when Judas kisses the Lord and now, of course, there's this betrayal and he's arrested and taken. There's, there's, it's a unbelievable scene there but this morning we started with the you are there series and uh they of course it started with what sort of day was it a day like all days that's what it said well it ended with this what sort of day was it a day like all days instead of saying you are there they would end with you were there 
and we were there this morning. We were there to see the physical, emotional, and the spiritual anguish that the Lord went through, his agony. We were there as eyewitnesses of his suffering, but also we were eyewitnesses to his submission to the Father, and that also that we would be there at the cross. Luke 23, four very, very important words. There they crucified him. We are the they. We were there. <clears throat> you know, I, I had a quick story, and you would think, well, you know what, I, my sin isn't that great, and I don't think the Lord really, uh, you know, he's not going to condemn me for something like that. Uh, all sin cannot be, it has to be reconciled. Every sin, every impure thought you had, every Im, uh, improper action, everything that we've ever done had to be atoned for. So we were there. A story is told of a man. He had a vivid dream of the beating of Jesus Christ. In the dream, he was moved to the torture of Christ that he was being subjected to, and it sickened him. He could hear the flogging again and again and again and the beating the Lord took. So he rushed at the, at the soldier who was beating Christ as if to stop him. And as the soldier turned, he was surprised to see his own face. That's us. That's where we were. The battle of Gethsemane was won, and it paved the way for the ultimate victory at Calvary. He paid the price for our redemption. We are not left groping in the dark here, for the scriptures plainly inform us that the Gethsemane cup was filled with the sins of all humanity. Our Lord looked deeply into the cesspool of human sin that dark night, and he groaned as he smelled its foul odor, and he viewed the rising poisonous fumes. Was there no other way to redeem humanity than drinking this corrupt cup? There was no other way. In a few short hours, he would drain that container to its last bitter drop of human depravity. That's from Williamton's Guide. And so, we have some lessons. The Lord Jesus is a model on how we should respond to the will of God. How have you been responding to it lately? Have you doing things according to your will? In those dark nights, in our own Gethsemanes, God will give us comfort, strength, and grace to endure. If should we ask for it? Yielding to the will of God opens the way for him to use any circumstance to deepen our relationship with him. How many times have we said, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Perhaps it is to grow closer to him. What Jesus dreaded the, uh, dreaded the most was the separation from God the Father. Is that our fear too? Well, if you've been born again, if you've reconciled your life and said to yourself at one point in time, you said, Lord, I lift up my hands to you. I am a sinner. I need saving. I accept what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for me, and I turn my life over to you. If you did that, you'll never be eternally separated from the Father. Never. But for many, they can't read this, and they can't say these words. This is from, O Christ, what burdens bow thy head. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, it was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draw it.
for me. What I'd like to do right now, and we can end just before prayer, if we wouldn't mind standing and singing in the black hymnal. It's number 141. It's called, Lead Me to Calvary. Linda, thank you. shall the glory be lest I forget thy thorn crowned brow lead me to Calvary lest I forget Gethsemane lest I forget thine agony lest I forget thy love Calvary show me the tomb where thou hast laid tenderly mourned and wed lest I forget I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Verse 4. May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee. Even thy cup of grief to share, thou hast borne all for me. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. It's decision time for some people here. You have to come to a holy, righteous God in order to enter heaven. We do it here on earth. After we're dead, there is no reconciliation. The scripture is very clear. There is only heaven and hell, no other place to go. And so you have to make that decision. I urge you to make that decision today. God loves you, but sin separated us from God. But God paid the debt that we owed. And so, won't you receive his free gift today? Let us pray. Our God, most gracious Father, we give you thanks for who you are. We thank you for the, your dear son who paid such an awful price, a price that we owed, but that he paid on the cross of Calvary. We ask that you look with favor upon us, Lord. We must admit that there are times when we've done things according to our will, 
not submitted to your will. And we thank you again for what you have told us today about submitting to your will, that you have our best interest in mind always. And so, Father, for those who need to turn toward you, I'd ask that they would pray that, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I ask you to be Savior and Lord of my life. I turn my life over to you, and I ask that you would save me. And for all these things, we give you thanks, honor, glory, and praise. We pray it in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.